0: it would be appropriate to speak about sainthood tonight. We're celebrating these themes, and I think sometimes we don't know the definition of the words. What is it, saint? Um, we don't use that in common parlance, uh, uh, but the word saint means sanctified one. It's one who is unstained and uh, one who isn't uh, morally diminished, uh, somebody who is... Uh, strong in their own self because of uh, their their bond with God that is um, completely undefiled and undiminished. And uh, the question, of course, has to be asked, what makes a saint? I mean, how do you become one of these people? What makes a saint? How do you take normal people like me and like you and turn them into people that emit and radiate with the love and grace of God and the power of God and the purity of God? Well, I want to say tonight something very simple to you, which is this, that sainthood involves two things, two ingredients. First, Jesus gives his life for us. Second, Jesus gives his life to us. He gives his life for us, and he gives his life to us. And if you've understood, not only mentally, but experientially what this means, you are in fact a saint. That's the recipe for sanctity. So, I want to speak about both tonight. The first of these themes will go with our first red lesson, the second with the second red lesson. But the first point Jesus gives his life for us. For us. You know, there's been a lot of debate throughout church history about how people are made into saints or recognized as saints, right? In the Roman tradition, <clears throat> um, people become saints through a very detailed process called canonization it's a complex process by where like this guy named Steve becomes Saint Steve. And Steve becomes Saint Steve usually after Steve's death because people start um, having an interest in this guy named Steve who died. And they start praying or asking Steve who is now dead to pray for them. And when they do that, they start experiencing things including miracles, and if there are three verifiable miracles, then Steve or Mr. Steve becomes Saint Steve. It's like a promotion, but th- but they've actually lessened it now to two miracles, which is kind of nice, right? The bar gets lowered a little bit. Everybody's happy, um, <clears throat> but so that's one way of thinking about it, but I-, I would say that within the scriptural context, canonization or becoming a saint isn't about creating posthumous miracles or, or having powers or even A particular um, form of intense piety sainthood is gifted to us in the most wonderful and unique and some would say even bizarre fashion and it's found in revelation chapter 7. revelation chapter 7 is a saintly scene with the saints of god surrounding the throne of god and the question is raised how are these people here how are they clean? How are they in the presence of God and unthreatened by it? You know, they're not cowering. And when the question is raised, why, why are they here? Revelation chapter 7 verse 14 provides the most beautiful and jaw-dropping answer ever, anywhere. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. They're bleached bleached by blood. And uh, some people would say, well, the blood of the lamb, that's a reference to Jesus's death and, his, and its purifying effects. Totally true. But it's, there's an older history to it, of course, that goes all the way back to the Passover. I mean, in which we <clears throat> remember that story that the, the children of Israel leaving Egypt and Um, And the lamb's blood was spilt. And later, lambs are sacrificed in the tabernacle. And even still later, lambs are sacrificed in the core sanctum of the temple. Why? Because it was a God-ordained way of portraying the fact that we live with justice. I meet all sorts of people now who, you know, whenever you make a truth claim, they say, well, that's true for you, but it's not true for me. And I'm always like, well, that's cute. But the the problem is that Immanuel Kant existed. I mean, he did. He existed. And Immanuel Kant said, if something is true, it is universally true, whether you like the truth or not. That's the thing about justice and righteousness. Like, it's true whether you want to like it or believe in it. And so the idea is, That we live within a just universe and nobody gets away with squat, ever. That's the biblical idea. Here's the problem with that. What if you're unjust? Then you're going to get walloped. That's the idea. But in Judaism, they gave you this picture, this blood parable of what if you could do a guilt transfer? What if some animal that was blemishless, pure, could be offered in your place and could receive justice? So that justice would be enacted and demonstrated and shown in garish terms, but that you would be free from the punishment because something else bore it in your stead. That's the basic framework behind sacrifice, that there is justice, but justice falls upon something else so that you only bear mercy and love and warmth and acceptance. That's the concept. Well, within Judaism, this is the framework that formed and fashioned the mind of Jesus Christ to the degree that he grew up believing that he was going to be uh, the ultimate world-affecting sacrifice. He understood that it wasn't really about pigeons, you know, like it really wasn't about sheep. Those were all signals that something grander was coming. So he was going to be the, the lamb person. Who would offer his life in a historic and yet cosmically affecting way to make sure that when it came to eternity you would have a place around the throne because your robe would not be uh, untidy and stained and show your shame but instead it would be washed white in the blood of the lamb not your blood sweat and tears Somebody else's blood, sweat, and tears, not your righteousness. Somebody else's righteousness. And that's why Christians always talk about God being for us in Christ, that Christ gives his life for us, not for for his well-being. He lost everything. It was for you, for your well-being. And that makes you a saint. That's the thing that sanctifies. That's the thing that cleanses. That's the thing that gives you a place at the table. That's That's... what gives you an invitation to the wedding supper of the Lamb. By the way, this is why St. Paul uses the term saint in ways that I wouldn't. He writes to the Corinthians, or as I sometimes call them, the Kardashians. He writes to the Corinthians who are, it's like, they're like frat boys and sorority sisters, but like on crack, maybe, maybe literally. And, uh, and notice what he says to them in his intro. He greets the saints of God in Corinth. Then ellipsis, dot, 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 I hear there's fornication among you, right? But both are true. You are declared saints, not because of your behavior, because your behavior is still kind of appalling, but you're declared saints because of the blood of the lamb, because your tarnished souls have been cleansed by the blood of the lamb. And so he dies for us. He did something on a bleaching tree that we could not do for ourselves because the thing about you and I, we are limited in terms of the damage we can undo. Even if you try, right? Even if you have, like, let's say you grew up in a crazy family and your whole goal in life is to make your family that you raise one day less crazy. And you, you know, all the king's horses and all the king's men and all your effort, really, it can help a little, but you can't fix everything because you can't turn back time and fix all the mistakes that that you know created a dark family system that you inherited you can't fix everything you can't fix all the mistakes that you've made all of the the, the deceits and errors and lusts you can't cure it all but what if what if god can unmake the past what if god can absolve the past what if God can unhook you in the present because he can take all of the dastardly deeds of history and drown them in sacrificial loving blood? What if that is true? Do you remember that? Um, it's, it's sort of um, uh, uh, cloying in some ways, but uh, Cher's song, If I Could Turn Back Time, do you remember it? Yeah. They always post that around the time when you turn your clocks back, you know, remember to turn back time, you know, and there's a big picture of Cher, which is kind of scary and wonderful all at the same time. But the lyrics of the song are so good, right? They're so good. If I could turn back time, if I could find a way, I'd take back all those words that had hurt you and you'd stay. Isn't that good? Doesn't everybody want that? Meaning, I wish I wasn't such an idiot 20 years ago and damaged my whole family or damaged my reputation or damaged my future vocation because I was a loudmouth idiot. And if I could simply turn back time, I would erase all of that and have a good relationship with people one that was actually loving and well connected, if I could turn back time. Well, what if in some cosmic metaphysical way that actually affects real time and space that happened? Uh, What if, and not what if, because it actually happened at Calvary where he was able through divine sacrificial substitutive love to take upon himself all of your nightmarish inner hellscape and bear it all and count you as fully righteous. There's this beautiful story. I don't know if it's true, but I hope it is. It's a story of this Filipina, wo- Filipina woman who had visions of Jesus Christ. And so she goes to her bishop and says, I'm um, saying I'm having mysticalist experiences of Jesus Christ and he's speaking to me. And the bishop thinks, yeah, what, okay. <laughs> like what meds are you on, you know? Um, he's a little skeptical. Uh, <clears throat> and he said, okay, so if this is real, if you're really having conversations with Jesus, how about you have a conversation with him and ask him this question? What dastardly sin did I confess when I was 18 years old? See what he says. A few days go by. Knocks at the bishop's door. She said, I, I had a conversation with Jesus, and I posed the question. What dastardly sin did you commit when you were 18 and you confessed? And he said, Oh, I'm all years. And she said, This is what Jesus told me. He said, I can't remember anymore. I can't remember anymore. Well, what if that's true because it's true? What if all the things that you hate about yourself are drowned in the amnesia of the cross? I think we we assume that our degraded love, our outbursts, our bad parenting are like written in permanent marker in some insane book. And at best, there's like whiteout over some of it. But if you peel back the white out, you can still see what was written there. But, But that it's never forgotten, it's always defining, it's always in some sense permanent, and it always wins the day. Why do we think this way? Because this is what we do. This is how we treat other people. When we've been offended, we don't forget so easily, and we record these things in a book in our mind, so as to say, keep your distance from that one. Make sure you uh, circuitously injure that one in response. Give them a little justice, or, you know, boundaries, or whatever, but like stay away. We do that with other people who have offended us, but we do that with ourselves because we can't let it go ourselves. All of the crimes of yesteryear that are still haunting our brains and taking up so much space in our hearts, but friends, The good news of the gospel is this. What if God is not just you, but bigger? What if God isn't like you? What if God isn't like me? What if God doesn't operate with your operating system? What if God drowns out your crimes in the amnesia of the cross? What if it is buried in the sea? What if it's separated as far as the east is from the west, and you've got nothing to worry about because you've got nothing to worry about? So your robe is made white, dear brother and sister. Your past and your future, when it comes to the criminal element, have been unmade because your canonization is Christ, the Christ who gave his life for us, who makes us saints by the blood. That's point one, Jesus gives his life for us. Point two, Jesus gives his life to us. Not only does he give his life for us on the cross, he also begins to share his nature with each individual one of us who have been forgiven by that cross blood. You know, the Sermon on the Mount, so flip to it if you would, begins with the word blessed. Blessed. When the Son of Man starts opening his mouth, he just can't help himself. He starts blessing uh, random groups of people. They're actually not random, but more into that, more, more about that in a sec. Um, blessed is, or blessed, Uh, if you're from Western Pennsylvania, blessed, people often think of that word as kind of shorthand for temporary success. That's how you know somebody's blessed. They're successful in some way you know, we are blessed as Americans, you know, we can vote. (laughs) Well, you know, we're blessed. Um, We have advantages as citizens, as part of a Western democracy, so we're blessed. Or we're wealthy, and we can retire in our mid-50s, so we're blessed. Or we're well-educated, so we're blessed. We're well-traveled, so we're blessed. We're multilingual, so we're blessed. We're in our physical prime, so we're blessed. I get it, but notice how the Beatitudes kind of, kind of mess with that simple system. Have you noticed? Because these assumptions about blessedness are turned on their heads because God calls things blessed that we would call miserable. <laughs> like, who wants half the things on this list? Who wants that? Yeah, because everybody in this list is either afflicted or vulnerable to affliction. The afflicted, right? The poor in spirit, those who are crushed on the inside, right? The mournful, those who can't stop crying. The persecuted, those who experience the serrated edge of the world because of their convictions. But also, those who are vulnerable to affliction, the meek who are often abused, uh, those who hunger for righteousness, that is, they're starving for a better world that doesn't yet exist, Uh, the merciful, in order to be merciful, you had to be offended in some way or hurt in some way to show mercy, the pure in heart, often called naive, surrounded by temptations and lords everywhere, peacemakers who are in the throes of war or strife or struggle, These are the areas over which God's blessing hovers. So when you see somebody who's tear sodden, when you see somebody who's clinically depressed, when you see somebody who's just stuck, when you see somebody who's trying to bring together a family in which so many people hate each other, that's where the blessing of God is hovering. And so real blessing isn't conventional. It plods through the hospices and dusty living rooms and overstacked offices of our lives. Heaven sees us with the our sobs, our inner bankruptcy, our dashed dreams of having things come together. And heaven's not only not mad, heaven declares its favor. God declares His favor over those places and on us when we are in them. Now, most Christians understandably believe that the Beatitudes are in some ways the blueprint, the inner blueprint for Jesus' followers, that these are the counterintuitive, yes, counterintuitive qualities of the saints, I think that's true, there's a lot of truth in that. But I think that's jumping the gun, it's getting a little too far ahead of ourselves, because I think when you consider all of the qualities that are described in the Beatitudes, poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, the hungry for righteousness, et cetera, if you consider them all together and put them together in one human being, what one human being do you see? Or if they were all pigments, right? Pigments that you are using to paint a picture, whose portrait would you paint? There's only one person I know of who fulfills all of these themes and conjoins them together in his own person, and that is Jesus. Jesus is the only one who lived up to and thus fulfilled the Sermon on the Mount, and it's certainly true in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, Philippians 2, and he made himself nothing, taking upon himself the very form of of a slave blessed are those who mourn john 11 jesus wept blessed are the meek matthew 11 take my yoke upon you and learn from me for i am meek and lowly in heart blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness at his baptism in matthew 3 it is necessary for this baptism to take place to fulfill all righteousness blessed are the merciful ephesians 2 God, being rich in mercy, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, we are saved. Blessed are the pure in heart, First Peter. He committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. Blessed are the peacemakers, Isaiah 9. He shall be called Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Blessed are the persecuted, John 19. And there they crucified him between two thieves, one on his left, and one on his right. In defining blessing, in pronouncing blessing, Jesus is defining himself. He is the one who fulfills the Beatitudes and thus shows us an internal blueprint for all of those who are attached to him by faith. In other words, if we want to be Christians and we want to be connected to the man who gives his life for others then by necessity, this is going to be our default programming as well. Because if it's his character, he wishes to give us that character too. Jesus gives us his own unstained nature. He gives it to us so that we can begin a spiritual detox program. He gives his eyes to us so that we would weep about things that are worthy of our tears. He gives his brain to us so that we can think about the injustice within ourselves and in the world with honesty. He gives his heart and his feelings to us so that we would crave mercy rather than severity. He gives his sensitivity to us so that we don't become hard-hearted within an iron-like world. To be a Christian means to receive, little by little, bits of Jesus' personality, after all the word christian means little christ and jesus is here filling the world with his presence through his people so jesus gives his life for us but he also gives his life to us investing that life inside us jesus is forming his saints in his image and likeness as defined by the beatitudes now again This must make us rethink how we define blessing, because we normally think of blessing as anything that boosts our ego, power, political cause, or dopamine. But Jesus defines blessing as anything that helps us to look like Him. Thus, friends, we have a generous Jesus who makes saints out of just about anybody. He just gives. He gives His life for you, and He gives His life to you, and that is how a saint is made. You are clothed with righteousness from the outside, and we are becoming like the righteous Christ on the inside. Now, if you need something concrete on this All Saints Sunday, uh, something that makes these conceptions tangible for you, we have a meal today for the saints of God that will help. Communion is all about Christ giving Himself for us as well as to us for us in this meal because somebody is going to hold in front of your faces bread and wine and say words to you, gospel words of promise, the body of Christ given for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. In other words, this is a personal word directed to you about your forgiven status. But it's also given to us, meaning What do we do when we are offered this consecrated bread and wine? Do we just look at it and say, thank you, and then walk away? Uh, do Do we take it home and put it on a shelf and think about it? No, we bite it, we chew it we drink it, we swallow it, we ingest these redeeming facts into the recesses of our being where we can't even see them anymore. We're taking them in by eating these elements. We are saying, this isn't just a fact outside of me. I want it to be fully incorporated into my life, into my veritable center, into the center of my being. I want this fact to nourish me, to take charge in me, Uh, to quote the prayer of humble access, that he might evermore dwell in us and we in him. He gives himself to me to reign within me and take up space at the very center of my life. That's what the supper is about. Christ is for you, and Christ gives his life to you to make you a saint. So today, dear saints of Almighty God, when you consume this supper... Sink your teeth into the sanctity of Jesus Christ and consume your canonization. And be reminded, no matter how, li- how your life is going right now, that the blessing of God always hovers low, exactly at the place of your existence. Christ has made you clean, Christ has made you worthy, and he won't stop his inner work until you are fully and finally free. For he is the author and the perfecter of our faith. I'm that. At last, they took your life. They could not take your